0: This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Yeah, yeah, fundies called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stopping as bulls to talk that book Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Hi, I'm Chris Judd, and this is Talk your Book, and today we're really lucky to be joined by Scott Rundell, the CIO of Mutual Limited. Scott, thanks very much for making it Talk Your Book debut. Pleasure. Now, you're regarded as a, a macro expert, so I thought that'd be a really good place for us to start, and we're filming this before the RBA meets today, so uh, there's always a chance for, for us to have egg on our face, but what are you expecting from the RBA's meeting later on today?
1: Um, I think it's it's a pretty safe bet that the RBA will increase rates by another 25 basis points, taking the cash rate to 3.1. It's a pretty aggressive move in in the grand scheme of things, that's uh, 300 basis points in seven months, uh, which is the most aggressive rate hike in the last 40, 50 years, Uh, and we know why, it's the inflationary pulse that's come through post the sort of pandemic stimulus that's come through in both monetary policy and fiscal policy.
0: And what do you think that means for our Aussie housing market? There's been a lot of news about people with fixed home loan mortgages that are about to become variable. Um, I mean, it's obvious how it's going to impact, but just how, how stark or how, how significant is the impact going to be on those home borrowers, do you think?
1: It's an interesting question. There's been a lot of talk. You mentioned fixed-rate mortgages. We have sort of some 40% of the outstanding loans in the market that have been fixed, um, and it's been well-publicised that those a lot of that 40% will come off second half of next year and then uh, obviously 2024 so a lot of that 300 basis point increase in cash rate and corresponding increase in mortgage rates has not really been felt in the household yet and that's been evident in some of the 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 consumer numbers which have been reasonably buoyant Um, but sentiment numbers are coming off so we do know that the households are well aware of it and my conversations with the banks have been uh, we are communicating actively with our borrowers to say that your mortgage will increase by X amount when your loan matures. Um, so be aware. So here and now I think your average household is aware of it. Some have obviously been impacted more immediately than others. Um, there's a significant lag and I think that's that's a bit of a challenge for the RBA to cope with that lag and and not go too hard too soon and drive the economy into a recession. Um, but also don't go too softly such that the inflationary pulse becomes too much of a, a, a genie. The genie's out of the bottle. It's too hard to get it back. You mentioned the lag that those
0: fixed home uh, mortgage borrowers are going to feel, but even with monetary policy, mm. it's, it's widely spoken of. There's a six to 12-month lag mm. between monetary poly and policy in effect in the economy, yet it feels, particularly in finance media, that, Expecting to come crashing down two months after a rate rise. Do you think people have enough respect for just how much of a lag there is between a Monetary policy decision and the flow through of that into the economy.
1: No, I think yeah It's a, it's a good point is that that respect is not there and it's, I guess it's a reflection of modern society where it's you know, There's always clickbait everyone wants to and bad news sells So the modern media jumps on or all the mainstream media jumps onto these rate hikes It's negative news click click click. What's it mean to my house price? What's it mean to my mortgage? So, I mean, CBA really released some uh, research in the last month or two. And from their experience and their own mortgage book, it takes three months for the cash flow impact of a rate hike to come through to household balance sheets. And so that's three months of a book that's 60% variable. Then there's the other 40% in the whole economy that hasn't had that impact. Um, and then there are also there's the, the underwriting process. I mean, people don't just wake up one day and decide to go and borrow money for a house. It's a long decision process. So there has to be a, a, a consideration for that thought process as well.
0: And often when you hear overseas investors talk about the Aussie housing market, they're convinced it's got to drop north of 50%, you know, some will quote 60, 70%. Mm-hmm. Um, yet there are a lot of things unique to our market. It's, it's really underwritten to a certain extent. By the government it's it's often people's biggest asset and there is just a mentality that it, it's got a huge importance in it, australian society do you think um those sorts of things are sometimes underappreciated by overseas investors when they just look at the value to to wages conundrum
1: yeah i mean exactly and uh, as we were speaking before we came on air i used to go around the world with cba as a chief credit strategist and you would spend a lot of time explaining the housing market here versus say the us or europe so Key differences are that here we don't have tax deductibility on our primary mortgage. Uh, When we sell our house, we keep the profits, whereas in America you're incentivised from tax to to run your leverage really high and you're taxed on your profit. But also we have full recourse in Australia, um, meaning the banks can take your car, your firstborn and and your kidney as I used to joke. So there's within that, but also if you look at the bigger picture, the, the value of Australian housing is just under $10 trillion. Yet we only have 2.1 to 2.3 trillion in outstanding loans, so that's eight trillion dollars of, of equity. Mm. And I think, depending on which bank results you read, most of them have a weighted average loan to value ratio of 45, 50%. So there's a lot of equity tied up there. And to your point about government underwriting it, uh, I think that comes through in the support for the banking system. And we saw that through the pandemic, with Reserve Bank providing cheap funding to banks. You know, they could borrow three-year money at 0.1% point two five initially so that to me is just strong uh, evidence that the government wants to support the banks because we have a uh, very concentrated banking system rightly or wrongly um, but it also underpins the financial strength of the overall economy and the government enjoys a ratings benefit from a strong banking system so that's also a consideration but to your point if we see house prices fall 20% this cycle which is what sort of consensus is Um, That sort of just takes us back to the long run trend anyway. Keeping in mind last year, we saw a very strong sort of 25 to 30% run up in house prices because of the cheap funding.
0: And if we pivot to the US, we had Jerome Powell recently say that it was close to starting to moderate interest rate rises in in America, but also that that they're a long way from done. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like he's really still got it. Uh, a foot in both camps, what's your view of, of where they are with their rate hiking cycle and how close are they to, be, to being done?
1: Uh, I think they've still got a fair way to go. Um, so the Fed meets next week, consensus is another 50 basis points, um, which takes them to four and a half percent off the top of my head. Um, the market's pricing in somewhere between five and five and a half percent as the terminal rate, so the peak in the cycle. Um, The issue with the U.S. is it's a lot more volatile, There's a lot more moving parts. The Fed has had less experience in sort of targeting inflation. Now, their target's 2%, um, but if you look at the long run average of of inflation in the U.S., it's it's rarely below 2%. So, an environment where they're seeing some strong inflationary pulses through supply chain, through uh, post-COVID pandemic, spending splurge, it's very hard to get that genie back in the bottle. Um, Although, there does seem to be uh, data signals that the CPI has come off a bit. But again, at the same time, the signals are very mixed. We saw last night very strong PRS-ism numbers, so service sector is doing very well, yet other measures are very weak. Um, So I would suggest, where I think the market is getting it wrong is the market is getting all enthusiastic, when I say markets, I mean risk assets, enthusiastic about this talk of moderating the rate hike cycle. They've done a lot of 75 basis points, they're talking now 50 next week, and everyone's getting excited about that. But I think there is a risk that the Fed comes out and says, well, actually, we think we're gonna be higher for longer. So you have higher interest rates for longer, which is an impediment for growth. And that's what's being reflected in the curve, the US Treasury curve is inverted. So the long yields are lower than the front yields, which historically has signaled recession.
0: And the three, three months and 10 years inverted as well, which means that the recession is actually not too far away no. historically, hasn't yeah.
1: it? Yeah, I mean, historically, I mean, if you look at the last five, six recessions, um, they haven't necessarily followed an inverted curve. But when the curve has been inverted historically, you have had a recession. So, um, yeah, the, the, I mean, technically, the Q1 and Q2 were negative. So most measures of recession, that's a recession. But um, uh, it, it is a harder job for the Fed to, I guess, forestall the a hard landing, which is what a lot of markets are factoring in. If you look at some of the models that predict recession, it's running around 62 to 65% probability.
0: And recessions um, are deflationary by their nature. Uh, do you think should that recession come, inflation will get down to the Fed's 2% target? Or do you think by the time they're looking to cut and actually stimulate the economy, inflation will still be higher than where they'd mm-hmm. like it to be, call it you know, around the 3 or 4% range?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is a tough question because when you look at the the variables that are driving inflation, um, a lot of them are sort of not within the control of the monetary policy. You have, obviously, the situation in China with supply chain constraints. We have the the unfortunate situation in Ukraine, which is impacting gas prices and oil prices. Um, So those variables are very hard to control and certainly outside the realms of the the Fed's influence. Um, So, yeah, they may have to just pivot towards a higher reading and somehow, somehow spin it as to being this is the new normal going forward. Um, so it, it, there are a lot of variables out in the ether going forward that will dictate what policy will look like and it's very hard to predict today.
0: I think that, I think that nuance about this inflation versus other inflationary mm. periods uh, particularly around the supply constraints mm. isn't something that gets spoken about no. a lot and in a sense the, the tightening of, of monetary conditions by the Fed you know, it's going to reduce capex into things like oil even more it's going to make it more challenging for supply chains to open up and, and appease those things and we've also had a move from um sort of in time inventory levels to in case type environment which is going to be exacerbated by you know the war type conditions we're, we're seeing across the country as well
1: yeah i mean i think the we, we talked earlier about the inflation in the 1970s and the 1980s which was sort of completely different to now you know the whole financial plumbing has changed drastically um, around monetary policy, around just derivative use, and so on. But the, the point there is, we've had a very deflationary environment for many years, and I, I remember being at a, an RBA speech where Governor Lowe sort of you know, wished for inflation. Careful what you wish for. Um, but what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years, leading into the pandemic, is China essentially de- uh, exporting deflation because of uh, the, the cheap cost of labour. All the manufacturing products around the world came out of China. The whole pandemic, the whole um, just-in-time inventory uh, situation it has become more problematic. And then you look at China's sort of wolf warrior mentality and that sort of stuff. I know I've spoken to people from Apple uh, and they are relocating or moving some of their manufacturing to countries like India and in Vietnam. So there is a pivot. It takes time to, to reinvest in operating capacity elsewhere. Um, but I think that just-in-time inventory is probably gonna be a blend of just-in-time but also we will maintain a little bit of entropy just in case because geopolitically things are getting a bit uneven again. And
0: aging demographics is is generally been viewed as being deflationary because Mm -hmm. people in their 60s and 70s spend less than they do when they're in their 30s and 40s and starting Mm -hmm. families and and doing those sorts of things but when you look at the labour market now and the amount of people that have removed themselves uh, due to them being at retirement age, do you think there's beginning to be a bit of a rethink that perhaps those demographics can be an, in, an inflationary uh, spike to the economy as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at one thing, if you, if you consider the Australian superannuation industry, there's sort of $3.3 trillion of assets there that need to be, you know, mum and dads when they retire and, and the baby boomers are coming through retirement, they're going to be probably retiring with pretty healthy bank balances. So they'll, they'll travel, they'll buy new cars and that sort of thing so I'll still sort of uh, consume but maybe not to the same extent that the younger generation is so there will be a pivot but then there'll be services requirements that will come out of that aging demographic that needs to be met and we'll see growth in those areas so i think there's growth opportunities it's just slightly different skewed and the market will change and from from my industry alone you know australia has been historically a very big investor sorry big investor in equities with a small fixed income allocation I think as time goes by, mum and dads who are retired don't really want to see a 21% drop in a given month because of a, of a shock to the system. So I will target more conservative investment profiles.
0: And when we look back to the US, we saw huge amounts of QE post-COVID in the, the government's response there. Do you think yield curve control uh, is something that you could see implemented in the US in an investable time frame? Uh,
1: short answer, no. Um, I think... By controlling that one metric, it's probably just a one step too far away from their, their sort of core capitalistic views. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time on this, but I think if they are going to sort of target the bond market, they'll do it through um, QA itself and Operation Twist and that sort of thing, rather than, hey, we're going to target the two year treasury yield at X. I think it just creates a lot of problems for the investment banking market and the like, it opens it up to arbitraging and, and sort of risk taking they probably don't want.
0: And talk to me about Mutual Limited. Give us the helicopter view of of how you guys look to invest and what your investment strategy is.
1: So, Mutual Limited was formed about 11 years ago. Um, It was initially formed to solve a problem. Um, If you look at a lot of investors in Australia, they invest in, or they buy deposits from the banks and then they invest in the equity and to some degree the hybrids, but there's the middle part, the debt, which retail investors can't touch because of the limitations around buying bonds. So, we've established a range of funds that target those. Uh, those parts of the capital stack and allows investors to invest in uh, bank bonds and, and bank subordinated notes um, so we focus on what we consider a conservative part of the, uh, the capital stack uh, we only invest in debt or contractual obligations so the underlying uh, borrow the people we're investing in have no discretion around paying us Other hybrids or equities um, so we're very much a conservative asset fund manager uh, we, t- we, we want to deliver a product with no surprises uh, we always provide liquidity through tough times, now, even during the pandemic we, we, we had no th- exit fees, no performance fees, we're a simple conservative fund manager. We have just under $3 billion under management, half across wholesale investors including some ultra high net worth individuals, some APRA regulated insurers, government bodies and then the other half is across four retail funds including a term deposit fund all the way up to a high yield fund. Um, so there's 11 of us, uh, four of us control the firm uh, from an ownership perspective um, and we want to be, we, we don't want to have that oh no conversation with a client. We want to deliver the return we promise without the volatility. So that's, that's the key focus.
0: And explain to me how the different is from the difference of the fixed income products you guys invest in to say a, a government bond for okay. example.
1: So the, 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 the government bond is a fixed rate bond. So you buy that, you get a coupon of 5%. And as interest rates move, you're encountering duration risk and that increases the volatility in capital. What we invest in are all floating rate notes. So floating rate notes exactly the same as a a fixed rate note in in a collateral sense or in a security sense. It's just that the coupon you receive adjusts every 30 to 90 days. So every 90 days, if interest rates have gone up, the coupon will reset at a margin above that rate. So through the whole, if you look at the Australia government bond index in Australia, it's down roughly 7% year to date, which is a unique circumstances never really happened in the past before. Our funds are positive 1% to 2% because we haven't had that interest rate risk. So in a rising interest rate environment or a rising inflation environment, floating rate notes are a very safe and secure uh, asset class to invest because we just don't have the same volatility.
0: Beautiful. Well, thanks very much for, for coming on and sharing macro views. Loved it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.